Welcome to the Good Bad Mad podcast, a show that's here to share the ins and outs of creative careers, connecting the aspirational with the experienced, with your host, me, Meg Ellis. My guest for this episode is the aptly named underwater cinematographer Ian Seabrook, who has worked on some of Hollywood's biggest films, including Batman vs Superman, Mission Impossible 4 and Jungle Cruise. We chat through how he found his craft and the lessons that he's learned along the way. He also takes us through a case study of an underwater car crash scene in Mission Impossible 4, working alongside Tom Cruise. Hope you enjoy it. Ian, hi. Hello. How are you? Thank you so, so much for joining me today. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Where Are you in a caravan? Yes. <laughs> I love it. Whereabouts are you at the moment on the West Coast? Yeah, no, I've just taken a little bit of time. My wife and I are going to do some paddleboarding. Oh, yeah, yeah. So thank you so, so much for joining us. So what, what we kind of do over here at um, The Good, Bad, Mad is basically delve into ins and outs of different careers within the creative space and kind of talk with people about what opportunities there might be and how people get into their careers and just kind of pass on that experience to the the upcoming generation really so just kind of learning all about what you do which is underwater cinematography super niche <laughs> yeah you yeah, know it is there's not that many people who do it so no I think uh, you created <clears throat> yourself a brilliant little <laughs> avenue there um yeah well you know there have been there have been um there have been specialists you know throughout um, the film industry throughout the years uh you know any of the guys who shot any of the bond pictures back in the day you know uh, in the 1960s and stuff they still space they specialize in the whole the same thing it was just a different generation that's all. yeah it does seem like underwater cinematography is kind of integral to action films uh, there's always yes, yes. There. somebody's trapped in a car somewhere or you know bullets flying underwater yeah, yeah all that stuff yeah so what I'd love to chat about really is firstly kind of how you got into the industry, where it all started for you and, and what that progression of your career looked like to kind of where you are today. Where where was your kind of interest in film first born? From a pretty young age, I watched, you know, 2001, A Space Odyssey, Giant, um, The Magnificent Seven, Lawrence of Arabia. So, you know, I had a fairly good appreciation for grandiose, you call it proper cinema, really, mm-hmm. um, or the classics or whatever, uh, at it from a young age. And also from that time frame, I was watching a lot of National Geographic or Disney um, nature documentaries on whales or sharks or just underwater, uh, the underwater realm per yeah. se um and you know i was always i was always interested and my, my parents had a subscription to national geographic the magazine so i would also look for the pictures and i'd see the pictures of the whales and the sharks and i would still kind of go you know they look so big how 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 do they get those pictures mm. um instead of going wow look at that great picture of the whale i thought it was always kind of going well how do they do that so that that was kind of spurned from a very early age and then you know augmenting that with um james bond movies like thunderball which you know you, when you're watching these films you'll try to hold your breath for as long as he's holding his breath for in the sequence <laughs> which of course you don't really realize that the whole thing's been edited and shot in different days and this and that but but nonetheless you know thunderball is still you know a sort still a source of inspiration today even though you know i mean i wasn't born when it was uh when it was made so yeah i mean i just i started having an appreciation for and an interest in a lot of uh cinema and then when i started um delving into my own interests that weren't what you know oh well you should see this film you should see that film you should see all the classics or whatever and then you know like the dirty dozen or whatever and i just started kind of finding my own um voice or interest in what films i liked and uh they started taking a little bit more of a darker side than the um 
typical atypical sort of happy-go-lucky i mean a lot of these pictures if you look at them now they wouldn't be made now but it's just the time frame where they were made um but i i i needed uh more of a story and i needed you know a good antagonist and a good protagonist to connect to mm -hmm. so um underwater wise um i was living in australia and got cert got uh, certified first certified underwater um as a diver uh mm -hmm. on the great barrier reef and when i went out they had um the, the shop that we got all the tanks from they had uh, camera rentals um and I, at that point i had already been interested in stills photography i'd already been doing a lot of stills photography with film i'd been developing my own negatives in the dark room playing around with the chemicals and that kind of stuff so mm -hmm. there was one thing was the one thing to take the photographs but then there was a whole other art to the developing of the photographs so yeah um, again i was interested in underwater but no one i didn't know anyone who did it there were very minimal books on the subject matter and even if they were uh there were books they were not instruction books there was basically these are pictorial uh, fish reef shark whale books and stuff like that so they never really tell you how they how they went about again still going back to that how do they do that kind of yeah thing. so so i went did a dive well did several dives and took some photos and i still have those photos actually um they're photos of mostly calcified reef but uh um you know for what someone someone who was getting into diving at that point i was like wow you know there's so many fish and there's so many sharks and there's so many amazing things in the sea hmm. but then if you talk to people who have been were diving you know in the in the sort of the frontier days of like you know the 1950s and the 60s they'll say well they, they were they used to be a lot more fish yeah. marine life was way different or the reefs were not as decimated so it seems that every generation says oh it was better when i was doing it um, yeah i mean and so now i mean the the oceans are are the world really as far as the uh, global warming and the overheating and that's affecting everything and mussels are boiling and mm -hmm. you know there's overfishing there's all this stuff going on so i mean you know i i can say that there were more fish now i can be the person who says oh yeah more <laughs> fish back and you know whenever those so uh anyway my interest in photography and my you know practical application of developing negatives and stuff and then when i saw that i started taking photos underwater um then that then that really triggered uh, another interest and so now i was kind of doing what i would always i always i'd always been staring at in mass geographic although i yeah. wasn't you know to that level at all i was actually you're still that, that that's the first that's the very first starting point being in the water with the camera around the same time i started getting into the film industry mm -hmm. and i started as an unpaid in camera intern like a lot of people do mm -hmm. um and the first thing i worked on was the american remake of la femme nikita mm -hmm. which uh was called the point of no return and it had bridget fonda in it so there was about four or five other unpaid interns who were also running around trying to um, out assist each other so that they would be, you know, they would be selected to be uh, an assistant on this film. But, you know, getting in the union in uh, Los Angeles at that time was quite difficult. It was very expensive. Yeah. And um, so there was, a, there, was, there was some non-union work that was going on, uh, not a lot. So it was very difficult to kind of break in. Um, and I knew that I wanted to to do underwater work. Um, it's just it just seemed like a bit of a Herculean task at times. Mm -hmm. um, I talked to enough people who had been doing it at the time, and uh, you know they, they told me the same thing. So, um, so then you know I just started assisting, and uh, then then I learned how to. I worked up my way. I worked my way up the camera department through all the positions: uh, clapper loader, focus puller, operator, and uh, and DP, and you think when I was still shooting, um, not like you know, not for free or some student film or or just someone's art project. It was actual you know paid commercial work or yeah. or, or film work. I learned how to put the camera housing together, put the camera housing together with the camera, and uh, some reloading film on a boat with waves and and splashing water everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. You have to do that quickly 
and you have to do it quickly and correctly so that when you take the camera underwater, it's not going to flood. So that practical application with film cameras helped me um, with stills cameras, helped me with uh, motion picture cameras, which are a lot more expensive when you flood yeah. them. So, um, so yeah, to me, it was a sort of a natural progression. There was an interest in photography, then it was an interest in diving. And I, I basically just put those two together. Mm. And so I was, a, I was a, a photographer uh, and then I was a diver. And then I started working in the film industry. So I came in, I came in with, a, with a little bit of uh, experience before um, I started shooting. The first thing I shot was a, a Bud Light uh, commercial in mm. 1998. And then the first film I shot was a Hellraiser sequel. I don't know whether it was four or five, um, <laughs> but it was a, a sequence which I've been presented with numerous times since then but that was the first time I had to figure it out which was a couple that's trapped in a car that's sinking and uh came that that in itself was enough of a challenge but then was presented with the fact that the lead actress did not feel comfortable in the water and didn't want to be in the water um so we had to um I think we came in um the dive safety guys had said she's not super comfortable but you know you could probably get the sequence done and then mm -hmm. the director went over and said okay now you're gonna be drowning and you're panicking and you're running out of air and all and then that just set her off and that was the end of that so yeah I don't we, had to, we we ended up re i had to think how to you know because we, we only had a day to shoot this and you have to you have to get the you have to get the work done you have a we had a body double we didn't really look anything like uh the, the, the actress so we had to go okay what are we going to do how are we going to get her physically in the car or underwater with her stating that she doesn't want to so basically i had to restructure that we shot everything in the in the deeper end with um the other actor who was okay with being in the water and a body double uh, with her head turned away from camera and then when we did the actress's close-ups we moved into the shallow end i pulled the door off we mounted the door uh to some grip stands and uh, she sat on a on an apple box or something that was going to float hmm. and then she banged against the window and pretended she was trapped in the car i used a tighter lens and we, we sprayed a bunch of bubbles and stuff everywhere to make it look all chaotic and i kind of you know shook the camera a little bit and um i mean if you watch it it's i mean i can obviously figure out that it's yeah that it's not in she's not in the car it taught me how to think fast um and to complete the day's work and to not go well i don't know what to do or you know uh, well i guess we're not doing that then or i guess the sequence is going to be you know she's not going to get close up it'll just be on the other guy because you know yeah. so that that was you know the first thing i shot underwater for as far as the features concerned was a learning process right off the get-go so usually every job presents a new um, query or you you come up come up against something that you either haven't done before or you're presented with a different scenario. Yeah. So. It sounds like you're your role kind of is continuously problem solving, really. Like yeah. I mean on a on a normal kind of land based set, you're you're doing that anyway, but then you add the the element of the water and oxygen tanks. <laughs> Yeah, and also when you're on the surface or when you're doing any kind of, you know, normal land-based cinematography, you've got uh, a lot of other people to help you with that decision. And, mm -hmm. and underwater, you're making the decision. You, mm -hmm. The job basically is um, the job of several different departments put into one person and, uh, you know, an actual underwater director of photography. Yeah, it's you, not can't, you simply, can't have an entire film crew underwater with you. No, and it's not simply a question of, of putting what what appears on the outside is just jumping in the water with a camera inside mm -hmm. of a house and, and swimming around in its soul. Happy-go-lucky, that, that, that's not even what I would refer to the job description at all. It's, it's the work of... Um, and perhaps you know Don Burgess, who who shot Forrest Gump, and I, I worked with him on underwater on a picture. Um, and someone on the surface saw me and said, "Oh, that looks like so much fun. It must be great just to kind of swim around." And and 
you know, Don looked at them and said, actually, the job is very, very difficult. It's a lot more yeah. complex than that. It's uh, you have to compose, you have to light, you have to be your own grip, you have to be your own safety person if you deal with the special effects you have to make keep an eye on the actor at the same time you don't have anyone looking after your own safety it's I mean, he it's like i didn't even have to say anything he mm -hmm. he already had, was was running down the, the list of all the things and i thought oh wow well, i'm glad i'm working with someone who gets it yeah yeah no 100 so, and, and because you mentioned it there i specifically wanted to ask you about lighting in in underwater circumstances because at least in, I mean, perhaps it's different in like an underwater studio, but in seas and oceans and all, all that kind of thing, I guess that's kind of an unknown element a lot of the time. Or, or, or is yeah. it? Does it well, come no, from I mean, scheduling? It's, it's scheduling, it's the time of the day, it's the time of the day the sequence takes place, it's going to be how long the sequence is going to take to do, given, you know, if you're only going to get two or three shots, uh, the travel time to get up these spots, um, the currents, the tides, everything where you can uh, where you can anchor all that other kind of stuff. What kind of lighting do you require for that open ocean work? Um, which you know, um, a lot of times we will use a variety of different reflective or bounce materials in the water. But if you're talking about current and uh, and that's how you do, how do you control that? How do you take a uh, um, a mirror board or um, you know diffusion material down with a combi stance and have it not I mean you've got these circumstances on land when you've got heavy winds a lot of times crews but they'll pull those lifts down or they'll pull the, the 40 by 40 uh, stance down for diffusion or, or negative bounce negative fill or what have you it's no different underwater you've got like massive current ripping and there's no way even with like 8,000 sandbags on top of these uh um, stands that you're that you're going to be able to do that so it takes some common sense to say instead of yeah. just saying this is what we're going to shoot to pay attention to what the locals in the area know historically about the um, the conditions and uh, and to adhere and to pay attention to their local knowledge and uh, you know also to be realistic with what you're scheduling mm -hmm. um, you know and also what what happens when cloud and weather come in yeah uh, is it all over or do you want to reschedule everything is is there a limit to say how how far deep you can go um due to lighting like because as as you go down meter by meter it, get, it gets darker yes correct so uh you know i've been down 150 170 feet and it's dark down there you need artificial light sources to make anything look uh like you've got any exposure on anything and the color color is usually the first thing to go red's the first color to go uh first five ten feet or so um and you know it can appear kind of dark brown on screen on film on, on emulsion and digital you can do a lot of tweaking in the color suite and um but so, if you so you know, with if you that stay... example do you actively ask the costume team not to put them in red clothing for instance uh, it depends if 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 the whole show the you know if it's oh, uh, where if the production where the the talent are in a certain outfit and there it depends how long the sequence is going to be if they're just falling off a boat or something like that then they're just then then you're going to have you, you will probably have enough color to but if they're going to be diving down into this you know underwater labyrinth then yeah the red is gonna is gonna not read as well so um oftentimes you know i think wardrobe decisions might be more on darker colors or blacks or grays or whatever so that they can they'll be able to pick them out if they're in blue water or you know if it's dark and it's supposed to be at night then it's going to look weird if the guy or the, or the gal is in a, in, a, in a fluorescent zoot suit or a silver outfit or something like that it just depends on what the sequence is but yeah. um, you know um so you know scheduling that is very important scheduling when you're you know and when you're working out in the open ocean or a lake or something that's not a controlled environment the controlled environment is is that is is exactly that you can control your lighting you can have the lighting set in a tank facility the talent will be a lot more comfortable because they're not fighting elements and also on top of that additional fears that they themselves may have about being in the water mm -hmm. um there's a select few group of um of actors that i've worked with that 
can also act as well as you know perform underwater uh, and you know be underwater hold their breath and be in an in an overhead environment or be in an environment that is not conducive to a quick and easy escape so not everyone that's not in everyone's wheelhouse a lot of people don't want to do that uh, understandably and um, it just requires um, training and uh, you know a lot of discussions and meetings about what the sequence is going to entail uh, mm -hmm. it's very easy to, for a screenwriter to write the sequence you know yes. oh, plane crashes and, and plane crashes and everybody swims through the fuselage as it's breaking apart well you know okay who's going to really do that oh and we want you know we want tom hanks to do it it's like okay well well he did it in castaway which is still the best example of a plane crash into water on mm -hmm. uh, on on film but you know not everybody's up for that so um and again with stunt personnel if that's who's going to be doing a large you know the lion's share of the if you have wider shots and you don't want to involve the talent or the talent don't want to be involved and you have to use stunt doubles or body doubles then you know they have to be comfortable doing that kind of thing as well so and there's people who specialize just as there's cameramen who specialize in underwater there's stunt mm -hmm. performers who specialize in water work and who are very good at it um, and there are also stunt people and camera people who say they specialize in underwater and they don't. And you find that out. <laughs> so so you if, if you out. had a choice of circumstances between the open ocean versus an underwater studio, you would pick the underwater studio for, for um, kind of easier logistics. Is that right? It depends on what you're shooting. But for a film production, it's probably more conducive to making your day yeah um and um, there's a lot of time eaten up when you are on the open ocean now when we went to tahiti to do the kryptonite discovery sequence on batman versus superman mm -hmm. we were not working with um performers we were working with um you know two young lads 14 year old uh, lad who was a he's actually a championship surfer he had surfed uh, chopo which is the, the giant wave there in tahiti amazing he lived there so he was he was very good <laughs> excuse me he was adept at holding his breath for a long period of time he was great and we did several different takes we did a you know we did a 15 different angles on that sequence with what only appears as two cuts in the film he was good to go take after take he did, he didn't really re need much rest time on the surface yeah um if you had an act and, and basically we had boats that were anchored there was a there was um there was a camera support boat which was a smaller boat that was from the sort of the main little mothership if you will and then the mothership is where the video monitor was and the director Zack Snyder was and any of the production for, you know, if we had, if we needed lights, I needed to have another boat with a generator in it so I could have cables that would go down underwater light and it would go down to the, to the water. And um, I also said to the you know again you're budgeting all this stuff as well yeah i said to the producer i can give you two options i can give you um, prototype led lights which are not on the market right now or i can or we can do it the, the the you know the conventional way of you know putting the generator the lighting generator on a secondary boat away from the mothership and it has to be constantly idling to, to fight the current so that the line the, the lines for the lights are not going to blow into the shot and he just looked at me and said, yeah, we're going to go with the prototype LED lights. Yeah. So at the time, they had not, LED lights were not really on the market at that point. So, and especially underwater LED lights. So um, we were, uh, I mean, I was hoping that that plan would work. I didn't really know that it would work because, mm -hmm. you know, everything was brand new. I mean, also I had to take the, the uh, batteries through because they were lithium i had to take them through by hand in my hand luggage and uh you know they looked like um it looks like a pipe bomb the batteries are all kind of taped together because they're 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 not manufactured it's a prototype so i mean i'm pretty lucky that we got everything through security no problem there but no detain <laughs> no detaining yeah exactly um so but you know when we yeah how how does it work then in terms of having the director on the surface and you underneath are you how do you communicate with each other are you having to like come up to the surface after every take 
I have an underwater speaker, which is relatively standard in the industry as far as underwater filming is concerned. Mm -hmm. We have an underwater loud loudspeaker, which basically is a um, it's a sealed speaker in a cage uh, and that hangs off either the side of the tank or we hang it up the side of the boat um, what its real purpose was was either a, it's a diver recall um, for large dive boats and it's also used for marine mammal um, attraction echolocation mm -hmm. attraction is really what it's used for in the scientific community um, and they also use them in pools for synchronized swimmers, or I think they're now called artistic swimming. I think that's the new title. I think they got rid of synchronized swimming. I just heard that at the Olympics. So it's called artistic swimming. Um, gotta stay current. Um, so, you know, the speakers have a variety, wide variety of uses. And so in, on this one, the diver recall, um, basically the speaker hangs off the boat or in the tank. And then there's a microphone that it's attached to on the surface. And so that is positioned next to the monitor, mm -hmm. the, the video feed, so that then I have a video feed coming from my underwater housing to the surface. Uh, or usually what happens is it gets, it gets sent to the DIT lately anyway for, for digital imaging. It gets sent to the DIT and then, then, they, then they usually either put a terror deck on the back of his cart or something. And then he beams it to a director on his handheld monitor so they can walk mm -hmm. around and not be tethered often more often than not they are all in one area there's one monitor that's close to the deck of the tank or the boat so that they can communicate with the talent if they need to um, and what will happen is uh, we'll shoot a take and depending on the elements depending where we are if we're you know if we're deeper or you know in open ocean or a lake or what have you um, if we're in a tank usually I will drop the camera and go and, and just check in with the director per take because they may want to make slightly slight adjustments. Now with the underwater speaker, it works best if you use less words and you speak twice. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I've had it where people have the desire to, you know, tell me, you know, oh, what we should do is you should, you know, come do this and pan here. And then when that person comes down, it's like it's far too many words. Mm -hmm. I can't hear. And plus the cast can't hear because they have a regulator in their mouth and every time you exhale, it's just all you hear is bubbles. So yeah. you're, you're hearing someone blathering on uh, while you're exhaling. So I just like keep your words to, you know, cut the fat out of your dialogue, essentially. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, divers ready. Okay, mask off and roll. That's all you really need to say. Mm -hmm. um, and so basically, you know, when, when we're rolling, you're also, because you're the person, I'm the person who's closest has the closest contact with the with the talent underwater uh, apart from their safety diver who is also way out of shot because if they're in shot they're going to be you know ruining the shot mm. uh, is that you know anything you are the first point of contact to them so you know if you need to make adjustments you end up being the director underwater essentially mm. uh, even though the the, the director on a, on a feature film would be um, on the surface, making making the calls, and sometimes it's the first assistant director who's got their hand on a microphone. But whoever that is, it just needs to be someone who's speaking concise. And uh, if they haven't used the equipment before, then we we go through the whole we go yeah. through the whole process. So so um, that line of commu communication between the surface and underwater is one way. Is that right? It's a director's fantasy. It's a one way communication where the director can speak and no one can answer back. So, um, so you just have to stay to underwater, get as many shots as you can as directed, and then, and then you go up to the surface and say, that's what we got. We'll do it per take because the talent usually, they're not going to stay. It's, sometimes they'll do a second take, but most times a reset underwater requires a whole bunch of things to be put back in place again. And it's just easier to, depending how difficult or you know um, advanced the, se the sequence is it's probably just easier to to uh, cut and then reset everything and then roll up again um, unless it's someone if it's certainly if it's someone jumping or falling into the water that's that's you're just going to cut the camera as soon as you, the shot's over mm. they're going to redo it so uh, I will nod the camera or shake the camera the yes or no that's how I communicate that if I if I understand that or you know, um, 
if there's a question about something, if it, if we can do it, if we can't do it, or whatever, I have all the usually have all the controls to change uh, any camera controls uh, on the exterior of the housing. So if I need to change things, mm. sometimes the DIT might say, you know, oh, can we go to a different color temperature, or you know, or the director says, hey, I want to shoot this at uh, you know. 40 frames or something like that. Well, we'll have to re-slate and I have underwater slates and they all, they basically stay underwater the entire time. And, and so then, so you're doing the slating, you're doing, you're composing, you're lighting, you're directing the talent, you're, you know. It's astonishing. Special effects. It's yeah, it's lot. everything. It's, yeah. So it's, you know, it's a lot more is what I'm trying to get at than just, yeah. you know, taking the camera and holding it and pointing it to something. So. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, yeah. I don't know just thinking about your oxygen allowance at all like I know I know people who have been diving and that that takes up their entire concentration you know they can't enjoy watching the fish and the animals I mean because um they're worried about that you know and thinking about that on top of everything else is very impressive work and that it's something that comes from uh, experience. I think yeah. when you first start diving, you're more enamored with the fact that you're breathing underwater, and uh, you know you, your 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 breath consumption, your air consumption, or your breath rate and your air consumption would be uh, likely a lot higher than it would be if you're if you've been doing it for a bit and you're comfortable with your equipment. The thing about yeah. underwater cinema, uh, underwater cinematographer is that you need to basically forget all of your diving skills. Mm. They have to be that dialed so that you're not fiddling with your equipment or, you know, fiddling with your buoyancy or your lack thereof. Um, <clears throat> with, you know, different cameras and lenses come different weights. The, the, the camera has to be balanced and ballasted, no different from a Steadicam or a uh, leaper head on a Technocrane. Mm. How, how much do these the cameras the and their housings actually weigh on you? Some of them can be 80 pounds out of the water. Some of them can be uh, 50 pounds out of the water. Some of the surf housings, which are lighter weight because you're dealing with uh, free diving in a surf environment, or they're lighter still. Maybe they're 30 pounds out of the water. Maybe they're 15 pounds. It's all different. It depends on the camera that's inside. I mean, obviously mm -hmm. the the red Komodo is very light, and some people are using DSLR lenses on it. Um, that or or you know full frame mirrorless lenses, or they're using a variety of different things. And yeah. as soon as you start adding cinema cinema glass into some of these housings, that's where they start getting quite heavy. Right. And so you know, uh, it just depends on what what camera and housing combination, or what camera and lens combination you're taking uh, mm -hmm. underwater. I work, I work a lot with Airflex cameras. Um, and, you know, for like, for many cinematographers, when Airy started making their own digital cameras, uh, they were the truest to a film camera or the most logical uh, workflow from mm -hmm. a film camera. And it's now kind of, you know, somewhat industry standard. I have shot with reds. Uh, I don't work as much with them just because that's what not what the projects have dictated. Yeah. Um, I every time I do a job, I always strive to use the same camera and lens package that is on the main unit. If I'm coming in to complement uh, underwater work on a on a film like say Jungle Cruise, I'm going to use the same camera that the production is using, mm -hmm. and I would I would and I'm hoping that uh, I'll be able to fit it inside. Uh, my housings. Uh, I have a couple of housings that will fit a variety of different cameras. Um, there are other housings on the market that do have the ability to fit five or six cameras in there. It's just uh, adjustable plates and stuff. I don't quite have that. It's a very good economic decision. That way you don't have to constantly keep trying to make uh, housings for new cameras. But uh, I, I, I've always required a small footprint. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the way I like to trim the fat off the the whole crew essentially is when I work in the water I have a select few people that I call to work with me because if I'm a specialist they're also a specialist and yeah. they can do they can do the job of several people also and so over the years you find people who are very good I mean I've worked with several different crews all over the world I've worked with crews in the UK which are fantastic um, <clears throat> but as far as the camera is concerned I'm a kind of a one-man band in that regard well, I guess no there's, from, yeah. there's no room for mistakes or no room, like there's no time to think, really. You've got to act on instinct, it sounds like. So having that person who's training maybe or 
not as practiced would kind of be detrimental to what you're trying to do under them. Correct. And it's why it's, you know, when I was starting out and you want to, you know, you want to join a crew that's already established, they're going to be, I don't know if the word hesitant is, is correct to use, but they're going to be, you know, cautious about if they bring you on, you're never going to be the person who's going to be holding the camera. You're going to, and even you're just going to be there to, you know, to learn mm. and uh, depending on your skill set, of course. So, I mean, this is what, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who want to just grab the camera and get in and think that it's super easy, but that ta that's taken a long time to uh, the process. I've, I um, always kind of think that the journeyman or the journeywoman process is m more important than just jumping in and, and being the CEO right away. Mm. I think it's important to understand the steps and, for, and certainly for camera technology, it's, it's, uh, you know, when I worked as a clapper loader and a focus puller, I am, I am understanding what the process of, you know, of building the camera. And I don't have, I don't, I'm not downloading the media at the end of the night anymore. I'm not downloading the mags, but I can still do all of it. So if yeah, I'm no, ever doing a, doing a everything film project cool. where we're out in the middle of nowhere, I mean, for sure on Batman versus Superman, when we were in Tahiti, um, we did underwater work and then there was some surface stuff that was happening as well with Steadicam and uh, nobody knew how to full focus mm. who was on. So I grabbed the, I grabbed the Preston and pulled focus on the, on the sequence. Mm. So I was like, I was the underwater DP, but I was focused, focus pulling on the Steadicam sequence in Tahiti because no one, <laughs> no one else knew how to do it. And then, and I hadn't, you know, I hadn't pulled focus for several years, but I still, it just like, yeah, came like, back like that. Parent. So, you know, could still thread the magazines and had no problem. So, and I wouldn't, I mean, you would just be standing on the sidelines going, oh, geez, I guess we're not going to make that day if you hadn't done all those steps. Mm. Um, so that's why I think it's very important that, uh, you know, you get that a lot with Steadicam operators. Uh, you know, clapper loaders will come and they'll stare at the Steadicam and they'll say, "Yeah, I look at the focus puller. I don't want to be that that gray-haired, irritated uh, person who's like so frustrated and, and mad all the time because the job's so difficult. I want to be the person who's you know the center of attention, holding the camera. So they want to skip the focus step altogether. Yeah. Which you know, the focus puller is building the Steadicam and he's building the camera on the Steadicam. So to me it's an important step that they're going to miss. That's just yeah. my personal opinion because no, I, that was the route that I took, but uh, you know, I, I agree. maybe I it doesn't like work for everyone. I feel like it's important to respect what other people do and to be able to respect it, you need to understand it. Um, on a film set, that's the way they work so, so well, like little machines, you know? Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you perhaps a silly question. I'm always fascinated by the bubbles, which sounds strange, <laughs> I'm sure. But is it a pain in the ass when, when you're filming or is there techniques and stuff to make sure that the bubbles cooperate with what you're filming? Are you talking about uh, exhalation bubbles or like people like breathing or are you talking about just um, bubbles in a car or not, what, a bit you... of everything like okay say you've got a car going down there's going to be a big kind of air vacuum in that i i assume how do you how do you yeah the funny thing that? is i've i've actually sank we've done sequences where we sank a couple of times where we've actually sank cars and you and you look at them on the surface it's very slow how a car sinks on yeah. the surface in films we make it look like they're like rocketing you know at light speed like a submarine which and there's, and there's usually a lot of bubbles otherwise people i guess it gives the illusion especially the direction of the bubbles it gives the illusion that the car is traveling at a rapid rate and they have to, so that's adding more tension to the sequence mm. um normally when you if you're doing a close-up on them if you're doing a car and it's sinking and you're going to do a close-up on someone in the car they'll normally what they'll do is what what also helps to sell it is that you're you're having um special effects bubbles uh, in the background to, to illustrate that there's air pockets coming out of the vehicle as it's uh, sinking and then the talent uh one thing i always find is 
humorous is when the talent go ah like they're like i can't get out of the car you're blowing all their air stores out like you're screaming underwater like I don't, i've nearly drowned um not at work it was on a it was on a pleasure dive but my regulator seal snapped at 130 feet and it was free-flowing it was i was not able to um get air on demand it was basically forcing air down my throat so i had to close off my larynx in order to um stop from choking on the air it was forcibly just like going down so and i was under control i i kind of started to this is you know a while ago of course but i started to ascend and then the dive partner that i was with who i we, of course we had become separated at some point but he pulled me back down and that's when i started to uh, panic uh, because now you're being confined in a space where you know me to escape from and um so i took in three or four lungfuls of water and then i got to the surface so i free swam from 130 feet uh and blew all my air out which is what you're supposed to do but i also you know took in three or four lungfuls of water so i know what it's like to nearly drown uh, so when I see it on film, like that's not how it happens. <laughs> oh God! I mean, one that is terrifying. You, oh God, you poor thing. Um, but two, yeah, it's like it—it's it, not a natural reaction, is it, to scream underwater? <laughs> no, or pound, or punch on the dashboard of the car, or punch on the window of the windshield. None of these things are natural. So when I see them in films, I'm just like, oh no, God, you're dead already. <laughs> Uh, the most the most accurate depiction of drowning in a film is Kurt Russell in Poseidon, the remake of the Poseidon Adventure. Kurt Russell, towards the end of the picture, goes in to um, uh, restart uh, an engine or something to, to allow um, uh, them to get through a passage or something like that. He goes in and he realizes that he's he's gone beyond his breath full like capabilities and he drowns but the way he does it is absolutely mm. accurate so absolutely. um it's not very it's not very dramatic it's uh and it looks a bit it doesn't it doesn't look very dramatic so mm. that's why people don't do it i guess so it's, essentially you know. in terms of creating drama underneath water bubbles that's how they do it the more bubbles the bigger the drama um well again with the bubbles when you when you have a uh, close to button a talent and they're breathing up a regulator, uh, normally what they'll do is they'll go into the water with a mask and a regulator with their safety diver. And when they get settled um, and they're in position, they'll, the surface will say, okay, remove your mask. We'll go through all this on land uh, as a drill so that they don't, so that they actually know what they're doing. So uh, sometimes when the talent put the mask on, they'll put it on so tight, then when they pull, pull the mask off and they're gonna do their underwater close-up, they've got the mask lying all around their face. So yeah. I always make sure that they don't put it on so tight. Um, and the next thing is because they're now breathing off a regulator with no mask on, there's small little micro bubbles that will kind of roll into the crevices of their eyes or up their nose or in their ears or whatever. And so, if they say, okay, remove the regulator and then action, they're gonna have bubbles all over their face. So it's usually it's clear your face, run your hands through your hair, get all the air out of your, of your hair, and then you, then you can start your shot. Mm. Uh, then that way it doesn't look like, you know, anyone watching the sequence is gonna start going, oh, look at the weird bubble in their eye there. They're not gonna concentrate on the right. shot. They're gonna concentrate on the anomalies within the shot, which is obviously not the purpose. And you know, the the actor or the performer, the talent in the water is going to feel that, that they look, you know, they want to look because... their best, even underwater. Exactly. You know, so bubbles, it just depends if they're needed in the shot or not. Mm. Um, is that an active conversation you have every time you're, you're putting together a shot list? You're like, we need bubbles in this one, not in this one. <laughs> so can we, can we move on to talking about this um, Mission Impossible? car scene in a little mm. bit of detail can we kind of yeah. maybe chat about the prep that goes into that kind of scene um a bit in detail and then kind of how how it went 
Well, normally what you do is you would, okay, so the sequence involves Tom Cruise being, um, he kind of gets picked up by, um, Tom Courtney is the actor who plays his sort of superior uh, at, the, at the bureau. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of telling him, you know, what his, what his options are for being, you know, agent on the run or rogue agent or whatever. Yeah. And I think that they're supposed to be in Prague. And then basically the car gets hit by a bunch of uh, machine, machine gun shots. And then the vehicle is uh, plummets off of a bridge into, into a canal or a river of some sort. So, and it's inverted upside down. And Cruz and Jeremy Renner are the only ones that are left alive. Um, and they have to fight their way out uh, while they're being shot at. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially it was a Cadillac that picked them up. So the Cadillac is what's gonna go in the water. And we had, a, we had so basically they need to remove all the fluids. The special effects department takes all the fluids and, and uh, you know, batteries, everything gets taken out of the vehicle uh, fluid wise. Okay. Um, and then sometimes what they what sometimes they do is they you know they they um, they'll put some fiberglass insulation in to to make it a bit if it if, it, if it's going to sink, uh, or sometimes they'll take as much stuff out as possible because the car is basically going to sink anyway. It's got that much weight to it. But if they want it to appear like it's floating, then uh, they'll sometimes they'll add some buoyancy to it. Uh, mm -hmm. Essentially, uh, on that film the sequence inside the car in the air pocket inside the car uh, uh, takes place in the back seat. So we, we, would, we would have spent with the stunt team, we would have spent six hours rehearsing with Dan Bradley, the second unit director. Um, and then at, what, at that point, uh, we spent a couple of days actually rehearsing. Um, and on one particular day, we spent six hours rehearsing with the stunt people. And there was a dummy for one of the secret service people that was dead mm. um, floating. And so then, you know, Tom came in and he looked at the video recording that was made of our rehearsals. And I watched what he was doing. And because I always watch what's happening, but he started to reblock everything. So he he looked at what they were doing, and then he adapted that and did it how he wanted to do it, mm -hmm. which is one hundred percent his prerogative. He's the one in the sequence. He needs to know. He can feel best in his own body, his own mechanism, his own motivation for doing certain things. So yeah, he dove in. He dove in. We watched him do all that. We dove in. He comes into the into the um, into the. We had the, basically the whole. It was an underwater uh, set that was built, um, and then I think they, uh, they they put it inside of a tank, and then we then we and then we filled it with water. Mm -hmm. So there was it was supposed to be the bottom of a river. So there were there was concrete that had been poured. There was rebar. There were dead tires. There's all this other kind of stuff that had been sitting there, but it was all cemented to the bottom of the set. And usually what happens when that happens is the director will go, Hey, put the camera here, or it'd be really cool if you could do this low angle here. And you, and you put the camera exactly where he wants it. And there's a giant tire that you can't move because it's cemented to the bottom of the tank. So um, the art department did had their own artistic license on that show, and it was like we were constantly trying to like rip these set pieces up because mm. uh, that's where the that's where the that's where the the camera action was being staged, and it was constantly like can't do that, got to get closer yeah. because I've got this tire or this you know branch or whatever was uh, glued yeah. down. So you know the set gets constructed, the car gets selected. Uh, the water gets filled in the tank and heated. And then so, you know, Tom changes the acting of the stunt personnel to suit his needs. He comes in, he said, hey, underwater camera guy, I'm gonna come in, swim under this line here. I'm gonna unclip uh, Renner's uh, seat belt because he's upside down because the mm -hmm. car is upside down. And then I'm gonna grab him, I'm gonna swim out. Okay, let's roll. So we didn't have any time to rehearse anything with Tom, we had spent six hours rehearsing 
with stunt people, which in a way you can say it was all incorrect because the, you know, he changed everything, yeah. um, which is just completely his prerogative. Um, so, so anyway, you know, it's basically a little, not, not dissimilar from any time you roll a camera underwater, you kind of are expected to get it on the first take mm. um, because especially if you're working with talent, not like Tom Cruise, he's, you know, very uh, capable with everything that he does. Yeah. So, and he, and he comes with expectation and he comes with a lot of enthusiasm and, um, you know, he's a great guy. He's a really capable performer. Um, and, but uh, I guess intense, he's, but he's in like perhaps the majority of talent that you work with who, who are less confident in what they're doing. Um, I don't know that I would, I would label them as less confident, but mm. um, I mean, he certainly takes the, the physical challenge to yeah. another level. Um, I'll say someone like Charlize Theron, who I've been in the water with a couple of times now, she is very capable mm -hmm. um, and not in a female machismo way. She's just, she's one of the select few who can actually act underwater. Right. Um, who knows what side of the camera to look at uh, and even though the script is saying, okay, you're underwater and you're terrified. Well, most people don't even need to act that they're already terrified because they don't want to be, you know, in the water or in a car or what have you. But so Charlize is able to do that, you know, she's, and she's, um, she's definitely one of the, one of the best actors that I've worked with in the water. Um, and Tom is very capable and he wants to do it all. And, um, you know, and he does it, so uh, he doesn't use, you know, he, he won't use the stunt double for that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. He does everything. So, um, you know, when we were, when Tom, uh, you know, pulls Renner out of the car, out of the seatbelt, they're still underwater and they're still being fired at um, on the surface. So he, we, there's a small air pocket that the car is still, it's on the bottom of the lake, but there's still a small air pocket in the mm -hmm. sequence. There's still a small air pocket. Uh, as the car is inverted, there's a small air pocket in the back seat where they're, where him, both him and Jeremy Renner have just come from. And so, you know, it's basically, you know, I don't know, probably a, maybe two inches or an inch and a half of space that yeah. and they have an air pocket. And they know that, you know, that air is gonna, it's gonna, it's, it's going to be reduced um so they had a limited amount of time so uh when we shot that <clears throat> we shot that inside the real vehicle but we had to reshoot it after we shot it because the carpet in the vehicle once it got wet kind of got it turned a kind of a dark black color because mm. it was probably already kind of maybe dark gray but when it got wet and soaked, it was dark black. So basically what it looked like when we did uh, Tom's close-ups and Jeremy Renner's close-ups, or you know, it's kind of a two shot of the two of them. Mm -hmm. It looked like they basically had their heads, uh, their hair slicked back and there was one dome light that was illuminating them that was still mm -hmm. on from the car. And they were, and that was it. It looked like we shot them against a black background. You couldn't okay. see any detail in the vehicle whatsoever. So then we had to reshoot. We saw the dailies with uh, Robert Ellis was, was, the, was the cinematographer on that uh, picture. So we went to dailies, looked at the dailies, and we're like, okay, we have to reshoot that. So they had to put different colored carpet in the vehicle mm. so, that, so that it would pick up more light. And so, again, you know, Tom, Tom had four Tom is so hands-on. He had four rolls of carpet. And he said the same thing. Hey, underwater camera guy. He never knew my name. Hey, underwater camera guy. Um, what, uh, what, which of these colors do you think looks the best? And he dipped each samples, each rolls. He would dip them in the water, and then he would, and then, and then we would look at them. And I'd say, I said, I think number two. And he goes, Really? I don't think so. I think number four. Let's get this implemented into the car, like in twenty in twenty five minutes, guys. And ro let's roll. And no word of a lie, it was done in about 18 minutes. I mean, that he had that much sort of authority and power, not in a malicious way, just that, you know, yeah, no. in, a, in a way that, hey, let's get things done. Let's move in a motivating way. So, and he was also a producer on the film. So that also helped, but uh, so, which, so yeah, which... we had to change the, uh, the, the interior carpet, rip all that stuff out. 
the special effects department had to re had to re-implement it all and put it all back in and then we sunk the car and, and we shot it again and that was it we only did it, we only did it once so so with that air pocket that you're talking about that kind of couple of inches um how are you like are you controlling that in any way or are you just basing on yeah they basically had the can the car erected on a camera crane Mm -hmm. Sorry, not on a camera crane, but a construction crane. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and when the camp, when the car hits the water, it's the same thing. It was on a cable release. It's it's suspended off of a construction crane. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've done a few car sequences when they hit the water. And you know, depending on the director, they usually want you right underneath the car when it hits, mm -hmm. because they want to see the car hitting the water coming at camera. And it's usually, it's usually the job of having it on a remote yeah uh remote underwater remote head or you have it locked off so that there's no one going to get clobbered mm. um i've certainly done it where i've had a car come at me and, and and i basically have swum around which makes the shot a lot more dynamic but you really have to be on your toes because <laughs> anything can happen and anything can go wrong so. you know when i when i did um x-men 3 i think it was uh, the sequence where uh, we were at alcatraz but none of this was underwater of course but uh, yeah uh, Magneto is basically uh, flinging cars in the air, and uh, I don't know what X Men mutant character was detonating them, and he was firing, he's shooting fireballs at them so mm. that they would explode. So when we shot that, basically what was happening for real, they were catapulting cars in the air, and then they would detonate them in the air on a timer, and where they landed, we just had to follow where they would land, and one landed about. 13 feet in front of me uh and so when you don't know and it was all at night as well so you could hear the boom, you'd hear the catapult go and then you hear this and then you wouldn't hear anything and then crash it would come down right in front of you so you know there's a couple people who are sort of like well so where's the car gonna land and i just looked over at them and i said it's a hunking <clears throat> hulking piece of metal it's going to land where it's going to land. And I mean, yeah. it was completely, you know, in a way, it was completely unsafe to do stuff like that. But, <laughs> you know, just the a director, tiny little bit unsafe. <laughs> the director, Simon Crane, is a, um, who's wonderful, but he's a, he's a, he is a stickler for realism and wants to do as much practically in camera as possible and without the use of uh, CGI. Mm. So, uh, um, but yeah, are you, are you um, up for that kind of? Well, clearly you're up for that kind of challenge. I've done it, but you do have to have a lot of discussions with the special effects department and the stunt department, and you have to. I mean, it's quite funny for that sequence. I had a, it was just before we rolled. This uh, this tiny stunt person came up just below me and had a had a like a riot shield to protect me, and I just looked and I thought that's going to, you're going to be killed. Like that's going to do nothing. <laughs> like this is you not know? instilling so I, I any confidence right now, but thank you. No, I, I just said like, if anything's going to happen, you're going to have very limited time to react and you're going to have to run. So if I have to run over someone, I'm going to trample you. So it's better if you're not in the way that that doesn't happen. <laughs> so, but yeah, it, it's just sometimes it's like, Hey, I'm here for your, you know, your whatever. But I mean, underwater on Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, the, Fifth one, Dead Men Tell No Tales. I think was the title of it. We had uh, they were shooting grape shot. They were they were launching cannons off of a off of a lift, and I uh, nearly got clobbered in the you know and they, you know a cannon, not a cannonball, but a cannon falling off of a <laughs> ship is is uh, is going to just sink like you know the Bismarck. So it's uh, you know, you get a lot of different requests for you know. And, you know projectile projectiles coming at the camera um i've okay. had my equipment dam damaged and have had to you know have it repaired and stuff like that so um but yeah you need to make the, the, the proper dialogue and ask the proper questions it's not just a question of oh sure let's throw it and, you know it'll hit the camera of course everyone wants the object to go past camera either you know very very close to camera and so the risk involved in that is that you have to be really close to the object mm. so so with, with something like, um, just going back to the underwater car scene um, from Mission Impossible, you've got the bullets flying in that scene as well. I'm assuming they're not literally throwing bullets at you. So how, how, how is that? No, 
there's a couple of ways that that happens. I guess the most obvious way is that they're computer generated. Um, I've also done it where they've been on a uh, very thin monofilament line and pulled through the water. Uh, they, that requires a lot more coordination because they have to go through a at lightning speeds. So you know, all you're seeing is like a um, to sell the effect. You're seeing a small micro bubble trail of where the bullets are. Um, and then they add all the sound and it actually sounds like someone's shoot. Cause I guess they figure that, you know, bullets would slow down in water. Yeah. So that's why they, they may, maybe the, they look a bit slower, but um, I've had monofilament lines with small little slugs. And I've also had um, people fire zerk kits into the water. Um, and uh, sometimes that foul, mostly most of the time that just fouls the water up. Yeah. So again, it depends what, how much time and prep the special effects department have had in order to create something that's not going to come apart or dissolve in, in water. Uh, there's a variety of different tricks that all that you know. The, there's a variety of different tricks that they'll come up with to, to figure all that stuff out. But in in that particular scene, it was CGI. I think we did some practical stuff, but you know they would have they would have augmented that with CG. Yeah. yeah. It's so interesting. You've got, I mean, it's so many departments on your shoulders, really, I guess, which is just astonishing. Yeah, and just in, in coordinating in coordinating with those departments, right? Like yeah. special effects is, is, are, are going to be the ones who are going to be, you know, supporting the camera, sorry, mm -hmm. supporting the car. Uh, they're going to be either dropping it or supporting it or flipping it or whatever, Any anything to do with the car. Yeah. We need to pull the can't get the camera in there stuff like that so they're the ones that are, that are doing that and i've certainly shown up on the day and you know the, the effects department had the the car um picked on the wrong axle and it was it was the wrong orientation mm. director absolutely blew a, a gasket so then they had to take another four hours to take it off the crane re-rig it and you know it's just it they call it the communications industry so it's important to make sure that everybody's all on board with you're sure you want it this way. You're sure you want it that way. Because on the day, if we change it, it's going to take this much time. These these yeah. questions need to be you know asked, right? So no different from you're sure you want to shoot in this cove. You know, at twelve o'clock, the tide comes in and it just completely decimates everything in in that small cove. You're sure you want to take that time to shoot here. These you know you, this is why you do I I do my own research with and my I do my own prep on yeah. top of the prep that I normally do, but I do extra prep just to make sure that you're, you're kind of, you know, you know a lot of what you're gonna come up against, yeah. but you're not no, gonna know everything. like an astonishing amount of work, but exciting. Um, so I guess, I guess if, if, if someone comes up to you and says, Ian, I'd, I'd love to be an underwater cinematographer, what, what kind of advice would you give to them on actually how to get into doing what you do? Would, would you just say to them, look, you need to learn cinematography and you need to learn diving and you need to be like very natural at both in order to put them together? Yeah, in a nutshell, it's probably pretty much it. I think if you want, I think your diving skill, well, it's not, I think, but your diving skills have to be exemplary and your diving skills have to be so good that you forget you forget them you're not it has trying to, to adjust your mask you're not trying to fiddle with you oh yeah it's got to be second nature so it's it's no different from if you're if you're a camera operator or a cinematographer and you have the camera and you're just going to turn it on and you're going to start shooting stuff and you're going to know how to expose and you're going to know what color temperature and all those kinds of things that's autumn pick the camera up and you and you, you know underwater it's the same process it's, it's just that you, you've got life support and you're in a different environment so you need to know what mm -hmm. there's there's the diving which has to be you know forgotten and uh concentrating on the camera work but you also have to be aware of hazards and you know a whole plethora of different things so yeah well Ian it sounds like you do an incredibly exciting job and just lead an incredibly exciting life by the sounds of it it can be frustrating. It can be exhilarating. It's it's it can be uh, maddening sometimes. It's it's just all the emotions all rolled into one. It's no different from any other 
you know, if you're a DP on the surface and you're going to have a great, oh, that was a fantastic setup or the man, the lighting took too long or, you know, um, I wish we had more time in the day, you know, or we didn't make the day. Yeah. A normal cinematographer is going to come up with gets all these different challenges and they're going to go through all those emotions throughout the day. It's underwater. It's, it's you come across the same ones, uh, but just in a different environment. Yeah. Uh, and then you're going to come across additional ones, which, you know, land-based cinematographers are not going to have to deal with, but, yeah. you know, well, um, aerial cinematographers, same thing, you know, it's like, you know, yeah. everybody has their things they have to come up against. And, oh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, overcome. good, good, bad and bad things all together but just certainly not a boring life you lead <laughs> ian thank you so so much yeah really really appreciate it and and can't wait to see the work that you've got coming up i hear you're working on the the thai cave um rescue mission movie yeah that one has officially been titled the rescue, the rescue. um and uh that's the sophomore picture from well it's not really sophomore because they've already made a couple but um well together i believe it was uh, elizabeth chai vassar helly and uh, jimmy chen and they won the oscar for free solo so uh mm -hmm. they their next picture is uh, it's getting into toronto film festival and also telluride so it's called the rescue and um it's the story of the wild boar soccer team in Thailand who were trapped yeah. in the cave and then the ensuing rescue that uh, took place. So uh, yeah, that'll be out. That should be out in October. Well, I, I will be certainly watching underwater scenes with a new appreciation. It's astonishing. Some of the stories you've just brought out there. So thank, thank you so, so much. And I'm sure um, any of our listeners will really appreciate hearing your, your experience passed on as well. Wonderful to talk with you today. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Bad Mad podcast. Please subscribe to check out the next episode or leave a review if you liked it. You can find us on Instagram at goodbadmad or at goodbadmad.com for additional resources and information. See you next time.